Good morning. Well, it is exciting to be here with you. I'm a little loud. Uh, as you can, you can guess from the, the title screen, we're actually starting a brand new sermon series this week that I'm excited for, even if you guys aren't. Uh, we're going to be spending a few weeks going through the letters of John. Uh, I was supposed to start last week, but I was sick, so I apologize for that. But I hear my wife did uh, a pretty decent job in my ac- uh, absence, yes? Yeah, yeah. Good, wonderful. Uh, Bill's happy because she was short and sweet. Uh, as today, I have a very large bottle of water, which means you're going to be in here for a while. But uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to 1 John chapter 1. First uh, John 1, 1 through 4 is where we'll be today. But as I do with most sermon series, when I begin them, uh, I want to give you some background to this particular book of the Bible. Uh, the good stuff, who wrote it, why, when, where, how, and all that kind of stuff. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was in, uh, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and to testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. As you can tell, that reads differently than most of the letters in the Bible. Uh, If you were to read... Uh, for instance, uh, some of the writings of Paul, uh, Paul always opens his books by saying, it is I, Paul, an apostle sent from God uh, through the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he would do some sort of blessing, grace and peace to you maybe, and he would identify who he was, who sent him, and on whose authority he has to say these things. That's how all of Paul's letters are identified That's how Peter identifies himself in his letters and in a few of the other books of the Bible as well. And so straight off the bat, you can see that the uh, first letter of John is different than every other epistle in the Bible. In fact, the first letter of John uh, actually uh, is structured more like a sermon than a letter. And so uh, there's some debate in some uh, theological scholarly circles, which I always like to to get into and describe, uh, that they think that this wasn't actually a letter that he sat down and was like, right, I'm writing to this group of people, they've been bad, and now I'm going to correct their behavior. But in fact, it was him sitting around with a group of people, just talking to them uh, like a sermon, and someone in the congregation sat and wrote down everything that he said. And so this, straight off the way, this is different than any uh, other epistle in Scripture. And to understand what John is talking about, what we need to do is we need to look to the background of First John. So we're going to be spending most of our time today talking about First John, its structure, uh, and how it all works out. we go. Now I'm caught up. My sermon notes on my pulpit wasn't caught up with where I was supposed to be. 
So we need to understand the background. We need to understand what was happening when this book was written. And the first thing that we need to discuss is the fact that we don't actually know who wrote the letter of First John. Now, I've been saying that John wrote it, uh, so you sort of understand where I, who, who I think wrote it, but uh, I want to give you both sides of the equation so that you know I'm not lying to you or making anything up. Uh, there is different arguments about who wrote this particular book of the Bible. And so uh, what you need to know is that the letter of John bears no author's name. There is no one, hey, my name is John and I am writing this book, not at the beginning or at the end. There is nothing in this book that identifies the author. In the books of 2nd John and 3rd John, uh, the author is identified simply as the elder. Again, it doesn't say who wrote the book. And so you might be asking yourselves, as most people do, uh, if there's no name on it and we don't know who actually wrote it, why do we call it 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, right? Why don't we call it 1st Elder, 2nd Elder, and the anonymous book? I'm glad you asked. I did the research. There we go. I'm going to try and keep up here on the notes. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the things that we believe is that the elder named in 2nd and 3rd John is actually the disciple that Jesus loved that's found through the Gospel of John. Uh, I've always and will always mention this, how I think it's kind of slightly arrogant when you're writing a book uh, to call yourself the one that Jesus loved. Uh, think about it for a second. If I was writing a letter to someone and I'm like, and I'm the one that Jesus loves, not you guys, me. I mean, it's kind of interesting for me from a, a, a research standpoint that John identifies himself as this, but there are uh, some very interesting reasons as to why we believe John wrote the book of First and Second and Third John. Uh, and here's just a couple. I've got five. There are more than this, but first of all, church history. So the book of John, we'll get to a bit later, was written somewhere before AD 90, but by the time you got to AD 100, the book of John was already being used by other Christians to, uh, to expand the gospel and to expand the kingdom. And those other Christians uh, said that John was the author. So you've got people like Polycarp, who I don't know about you, but I think is a fantastic name. Uh, I don't have kids yet, but I'm really considering Polycarp as one of the names uh, of one of my future children. And maybe Papias, because... That just rolls right on, out of the tongue, doesn't it? Definitely it's not going to be bullied in school if your name is Papias. Uh, but these guys were hugely influential early Christians. They were uh, after the apostles, so the apostles had started dying off, usually through uh, martyrdom or some other means. And so these guys were leaders in the church, and they were writing uh, letters, and they were writing treaties on Christianity and what we believe and why we believe it. And both of them, in AD 100, wrote things saying, that John, the disciple who Jesus loved, the disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, was also the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we know from church history that John is the author. In addition to that, uh, the style of the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is uh, almost identical to the style that we find in the Gospel of John. And by style, what I mean is the style of writing uh, the, the words that are used, it indicates a common author. And so we take that away and say, well, if they're using the same words, they're using the same sentence structures, they've uh, got to be similar authors. The vocabulary found in the book of 
John also is reflected in the Gospels of uh, the Gospel of John. And so, to give you an example, the word believed is used over a hundred times in the Gospel of John, and the word faith is used zero times. And in the letters of John, it's always nice when my little PowerPoint catches up to where I'm going. Uh, and in the letters of John, the, use, the word belief is used nine times, and the word faith is only used once. And so even the words, the vocabulary that is used in both of these books are similar. And so moving on, so what else? Uh, number four, the themes. Hey, this is a fun one. Uh, you might know this already, but the theme of light and love is huge in the Gospel of John. It is also huge in the book of First John which doesn't have an author. And so from the themes that are found in both books, we say that there is similar authors. And the fifth and final point is that the theology is the same. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Of course, the theology is the same. It's all in the same Bible. Yes, however, even within different books, there are different aspects of theology that people focus on. For instance, if you were to read the writings of Paul, he is very faith, 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 faith. That's his uh, soapbox that he stands on and he preaches over and over and over again. But if you were to flip to the book of James, you would read that James says that faith without works is a dead faith, and so you need to actually have some form of, tram some form of transformation in your life. And so James's soapbox is, yes, you have faith, but you need to actually do something with it, otherwise it's worthless. And so even within the Bible, different books, there are different bits of theology that is forefront to those books, and the book of John and the, sorry, the Gospel of John and the letters of John uh, have the same thought of theology. So all those five things, our powers combined, we say that John is the author of the, of the books of John. Is everyone with me so far? Have I bored the pants off you yet? All in, all in the same Bible. All different translations. So, interestingly enough, there is another thought that because I am a fair person, I'm going to give you the other thought. The other thought, uh, which isn't in my notes, so that means I'm going to go even longer, but whatever, I don't care. I've got the microphone. Uh, the other thought is simply this, is that there was a, another person called John that went around with the disciples, that he wrote the book of John, and he was called the Elder. Some of you look confused. Let me explain. Uh, the John that we're talking about is John, the son of Zebedee, who had a brother named James. Uh, James is called James the Greater, where Jesus' brother, who is also named James, is called James the Lesser. They gave each other titles, which I don't know about you, but I don't know how, you know, like, family dinners went when one of them was like, I'm the, I'm the Greater, and you're the Lesser. I'm not sure how those family dinners really went, but it sort of happened with the disciples. And so they gave each other nicknames uh, and, and attributes so that they could discern who was what. James the greater, the son of, uh, the brother of John here, who wrote this, who I believe wrote this book, uh, was the first Christian, uh, sorry, the first apostle that was martyred. Uh, Stephen was the first Christian that was martyred, but James was the first one that was killed by Herod in the book of Acts. And where the other James, who was the brother of Jesus, was killed at a later time, uh, actually a, a lot later on. And so these people have different names. And so one of the theories here is that rather than the author being John the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author is John the elder. The problem with that theory is that that is not supported by church history, and in no other writings does anyone call themselves the elder. 
Does that make, make sense? So now you know why I came down on the side of this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. All right. That's a lot of information. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but next time you go to a party and someone wants to know who wrote the book of John, there you go. These are the type of parties that I go to. To put this in perspective, I want to talk a little bit about the date of writing. The date of writing is no later than 90 AD, uh, but somewhere, all, in all honesty, in the 70s or 80s AD. What happened is that the disciples were in Jerusalem and they had a church in Jerusalem, but something happened between the Roman Empire and the Christian church, uh, and so the Christians actually had to flee. They had to disperse the city of Jerusalem, and so they went to different places. And it was believed that in that dispersion of people, and that was before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but in that dispersion, these disciples went off and they all sort of became elders of churches all around the continent of Asia and throughout uh, the Roman Empire. And so you had John being dispersed, and we know it was written before the book of Revelation, which is dated somewhere in the 90s AD. So in case you're wondering where we get that time from, that's where we get it. So it was written probably around 80 AD. But here's what's really interesting and, and where we're going to be spending the rest of our time together and what we're going to be talking about as this series progresses. And it's always the why did someone write this letter. The background stuff for me is fascinating. For some of you, I know you're already asleep. And that's okay because it's interesting for me. Um, but why do people, why did these people, these Christians, write these letters to other Christians? Now, the obvious answer, obviously, is that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write them. Uh, but the Holy Spirit used circumstances and situations in the early church to inspire these authors to write to particular people. So, interestingly, if the book of 1 John, if this letter doesn't have John's name, it doesn't have a target audience, how do we know how he wrote or who he wrote this letter to? When you go through the letter of John, you can find subtle clues about what John was writing, the theology that he was writing to combat, and from that we draw out information as to what he was, uh, who he was writing to. And that brings us to Ephesus. Now, some of you are familiar with this name. Some of you are like, hey, there's another book in the Bible called Ephesians. Yes, in case you're wondering, the Ephesians were so messed up that they had at least two books of the Bible written to them because of their bad theology. That's a messed up church. Like, I don't know about you, but if Paul was to walk through the back doors of this church and be like, actually, you got this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, and then John, the disciple who Jesus loved, walked through the back door of the church and said, yes, and you also got this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong, I would start to panic. Like, I don't know about you, maybe because I'm the pastor of the church and you're not, you wouldn't worry about it. You just point at me and say, well, it's his fault. He's the one with the microphone. <laughs> I would start to worry. And so uh, John is writing to this church in Ephesus. Now, uh, because I love information and I love pictures, I have a picture for you. Uh, this is Ephesus. In case you're wondering, this little uh, red dot right there is Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city. It was a major part of the Roman Empire. It was hugely powerful. It was hugely influential. Uh, 
if you were to see, if we were to zoom out and look at a greater map here, you would see that pretty much anyone coming from Jerusalem would sail along and at one point or another, they would stop in Ephesus. If you were sailing from Rome in the opposite direction, you would stop at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus then had major roads that then linked out to some of the other churches, cities in Asia. Uh, Ephesus was the place it was happening. It was the uh, hub of culture in Asia. There were other hubs, but really Ephesus was this major, major uh, port. It was hugely influential. Uh, in addition to being a powerhouse of economy, it was also a powerhouse of culture and religion. In fact, it contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I'm not sure if how many of you know what the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, are, but one of them was found in Ephesus, and it was the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis uh, was destroyed several times and rebuilt several times. Uh, there's a huge history if you ever want to go into it. I don't have enough time to explain it all to you here, but the Temple of Artemis was the focal point of the city of Ephesus. It was the place where everyone who lived in the city went and worshipped. It didn't matter if you really believed in Artemis or not, or you wanted to worship her or not. If you wanted to trade with other people, you needed to be seen at the Temple of Artemis. If you wanted your business to be successful, people needed to see you worshipping there, because if you didn't, you were being disrespectful, they wouldn't trade with you. The Temple of Artemis was life for the Ephesians. Now, what's really interesting, uh, and I've just written this down, that the cult of Artemis was a powerful group. If you have that amount of power amassed in that small of space, you're going to have individuals who amass that power and can wield it. And so the cult of Artemis was an extremely powerful group within the city of Ephesus that essentially told people how to live and how they, uh, how they could worship. It was incredible when you study it. Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Uh, I just want to show you a little bit of textual evidence here. I like finding other things in Scripture that supports where I'm going with things. It means I'm not going off, uh, uh, off script, if you will. So if you turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 23, uh, 23 this is what it says. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, and that's Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the worksmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, that this poor has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that also the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence with uh, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Uh, the reason that I put that up on the screen is to show that even in other books of the Bible, there is definite uh, information that says that Artemis was a huge deal. 
uh, the riot in Ephesus, if you were to continue reading that story, got to a point where Paul gets arrested for proclaiming the message of, of God. Essentially what this silversmith said is, if he keeps going the way that he's going and he gets all these people converted and people are going to stop worshipping Artemis, all our money is going away because that's what we do. We make shrines and statues to this God. People are going to stop worshipping her if they start knowing Jesus, uh, which I think is a, a huge testament to Paul and his ministry, that people would stop worshipping foreign gods simply through the power of his persuasive speech. In addition to this entire culture, John was acutely aware that there were people, Christians, inside of the church that were walking away from Jesus and walking away from the church because of a practice called Gnosticism. It's a fun word to say, Gnosticism. Uh, it's like a gnome. The G is silent. You don't actually pronounce it. But Gnosticism, I think I've got a, a nice little definition here. Essentially, uh, Gnosticism believed that if you got a certain set of knowledge, it would save you from hell. Essentially, what they did is they said, we know a secret. If you pay us enough money, if you give us enough stuff, we'll tell you what that secret is, and that secret will keep you from hell. They were selling salvation. The Gnostics borrowed uh, a lot of imagery from uh, Christianity. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, but basically, what the Gnostics believed was that flesh, that the, all of creation around you was basically evil that there was nothing good in creation itself, but rather everything that was spirit was good. And so they rejected the incarnation of Christ because if Jesus came in flesh, it means he would be evil. And so rather they said when Jesus came, he was just a spirit and had no flesh to him. And so the Gnostics were on the rise in Ephesus in this particular place, saying that if you just come to us, we'll give you special secret knowledge. If you just do what we tell you to do, you'll be saved. And then Paul comes along and then other people come along and they're saying, no, that's not actually the way it goes. Here we believe in Jesus. We believe that he was fully human. We believe he was fully God, that he was uh, one person and yet had two natures uh, and those natures were not at odd, and yet the Gnostics said, no, those natures have to be at odds because of our belief. And so the Gnostics, uh, one of the things that they did was they took Christian imagery and motifs and tried to interweave it into their Gnostic practices, and they did this specifically to tempt people away from the church. The book of First John was written to Christians who were leaving the church and leaving the way of Christ to follow Gnosticism and the evil of it. And so these books were written to get these people out of these cults. The reason that I talk about this and that I want you to know about these things is because this happens in the church today. Uh, you can get special churches who have massive buildings, massive congregations, and say, you know what, if you donate X amount of dollars to the pastor, then your cancer is going to get cured. And they say things like, if you donate this amount of money to the church, then you're going to get that dream job. Don't worry about it. Just donate this money first. 
and you can watch infomercials on TV and you can see these pastors who seem like they're filled with the Spirit and filled with conviction and they can talk real nice and real pretty and they can convince you of almost anything and yet they're selling something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to sell people salvation. And it is exactly what was happening in the church uh, in Ephesus. These people were leaving the church because someone was selling them a bill of goods that had nothing to do with the work of Jesus Christ. This is the truth, that the work of Jesus Christ is a free gift to all who believe. It is not for sale by anyone for any price. It is free from God. And what happens even in today's society, within the church culture that we have, within our religious culture, there are people who try to sell religion, and it is stupid and shameful. And I want us to be a church that can identify when people who are cultish come along and say, yes, Jesus Christ, but also X, Y, and Z. Yes, it's Jesus, but you also need to give the pastor 100 bucks because he needs a faster private jet. You laugh, that was in the news recently. A pastor who bought himself a private jet because God wanted him to get to locations faster so he could preach the gospel. Uh, In case you're wondering, Jesus rented a donkey once in his entire life. And he did it by going up and saying, hey, tell that person he's giving me the donkey, just tell him the Messiah sent you. That's how he got the donkey. Jesus was poor. I'm not sure... This isn't in my notes, but whatever, I don't care. Uh, Jesus was poor. I'm not sure if you realize this or not. He relied on the charity of strangers, especially women uh, in the ministry around him, to give him housing, lodging, and food. Jesus was an itinerant itinerant minister. He went from location to location, never knowing that when he got there, uh, how he was going to be taken care for, but he simply believed that the Father who sent him was going to provide for him. That's the same thing in our lives today. God doesn't guarantee you anything, but what he says is if you trust in me, if you believe in me, I will provide your needs. He doesn't say once. I really wish he did because there's a new Xbox coming out and I really want it. But he doesn't say once. He says needs. I will provide all of my needs according to my riches, says Jesus. And so this happens and will happen and is happening in today's church, and I want you as a congregation to be aware of it and to be able to identify it and say, no, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said X, Y, Z. And so as we study the book of First, Second, and Third John, we're going to do all three. I know some of you calm down. Second and Third John are the shortest books of the Bible, literally. Uh, third John is the shortest. Second John is the second shortest, in case you're wondering. We're going to be studying all three. I want you to understand that these books were written specifically to counter incorrect teachings about Christ. And I want you to be aware. I want you to be aware so you can identify these false teachings. That being said, we're going to conclude our time together with three simple things. Some which we've already gone over, so we might not have to spend too long on them, but I want to keep these three things in mind as we continue studying this book of the Bible. Uh, Next week, I'm not here. Cadet Shelby will be giving the sermon. Uh, So pray for her now, but also listen to what she has to tell you because I'm sure it's going to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I want you to keep these three things in mind as we move through this sermon series. Number one, uh, 
In fact, I'm going to have all three of them on the screen in case you're keeping notes. Uh, the first thing that we need to keep in mind is true doctrine. This is a theme that's going to come up in these books over and over and over again. And true doctrine simply means the right way of thinking and expressing our faith about Jesus Christ. The right way of thinking about God. Believe it or not, there is a wrong way to think about God. If you think about God as your fairy godmother, who's there to, to grant you three miraculous wishes. No, that's a genie. Um, the fairy godmother gets you to the ball on time, that's right. Uh, if you think that the fairy godmother is here to wave a magic wand, give you a shiny new dress, shiny new slippers, and a free ride, and get you to the ball on time, uh, you're going to have a bad time with life. Because that's not God. God's not, God doesn't do that. He's not at your beck and call to fix everything that you want in your life. So true doctrine tells us that God provides according to our needs that is in accordance with his will. This is what's really important about this. When you're obedient to God and you follow his will, he provides for your needs. When you step outside of his will, he doesn't. Now, we'll get into that a little later on. I like to leave people hanging. Two, we're going to learn about obedient living. It's not just about hearing the message and understanding the message. It's also about then how you live your life later on. It's how you take that message and you apply it to your life so that you're walking in the will of God. And third, it's about fervent devotion to God. This is the thing I think the church has, has missed. We live in a culture, in a society that says it's all about the individual, it's all about you, it's a me, me, me culture. It's, believe it or not, not just my generation, you can't just blame millennials, it's also everyone else. Okay? I saw some of you were like, well, those young people. No, it's everyone. <laughs> I could go on a rant about how millennials don't actually exist. It's a marketing ploy, but that's a whole other sermon for another time. Fervent devotion is something that the church as a whole is missing. It used to be here uh, a long time ago. Uh, there was a person, I'm not sure if you know him, he's a theologian whose name was uh, uh, John Owens. He wrote several books. Several of his quotes are fantastic, but he said, Oh, for the glory of God, herein would I dwell for the rest of my life. His entire premise was, if I could just dwell in the glory of God for my entire life, I would be happy and content in my physical life until I died. And that was it. That was what he wanted for his entire life, was simply to be in the presence of God, and that was going to be enough for him. There are uh, monks and members of the church who wrote many books about their lives of getting rid of everything that they owned simply so they could focus their attention and devotion on God and that they found that when they did that, God provided all of their needs and some of their wants as well and that they could live these lives of simple prayer and devotion to God. Do you ever wonder why the churches in Africa and in China have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of members in their congregations. That they can have a weekend where they enroll 700 junior soldiers in a single weekend and 1,300 senior soldiers in the same weekend. That their churches are growing exponentially. It's because all of this other stuff and junk that they put in their lives, they don't have. And we as Americans, and I won't even say as Americans, I'll say as Western civilization, because this is not just in America, this is also in Europe, and it's also uh, in my country, Australia. This materialistic thing that we do centers everything that we are on self. And that doesn't exist in other places. And they're seeing this incredible explosion of growth 
because where they put their devotion is on God, not on the stuff in their lives. And I want us to be a church that gets back to fervent devotion to God. If you're with me on that, then come back in next week and in the, in the weeks to follow, and you'll learn a lot, lot more about how we can do that through learning about the book of John. Amen? Amen. Amen.